We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Roger. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment first. This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility uh, Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 33 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Science Overload. Mercury Atlas 7, Aurora 7. After the successful completion of the Mercury Atlas 6 flight that carried John Glenn for three orbits, it was Scott Carpenter's turn to pilot Mercury Atlas 7, which he named Aurora 7. The mission was essentially a repeat of John Glenn's three-orbit mission, but the focus this time was on science. The full flight plan included the first study of liquids and weightlessness, Earth photography, star observations, Venus sightings, and multitudes of other experiments. Here's how NASA described the science. Carpenter would make new scientific observations from space for the benefit of all mankind. He would use Aurora 7 as a platform for science, for star observations, measurements of star brightness in space, using a specially designed photometer, measurements of the relative brightness of zodiacal light and other dim night phenomena, using a special instrument with crossed Polaroid filters. This instrument also permits direct viewing of the sun's disk and measurements of the polarization of the sun's corona measurements of light attenuation through the atmosphere and more than a dozen other astronomical and physiological experiments, experiments that cannot be performed on Earth. Carpenter would also make observations and photographs of the booster falling away to investigate the visual limitations associated with a receding object in space. Color perception by releasing a multicolored balloon, then observing and photographing the balloon to determine its color reflectivity and aerodynamic behavior, both of which have a bearing on visual aspects of future rendezvous missions in space. Photographs of the Earth's horizon to be taken through special filters for scientific study by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. Photographs of cloud masses over the Earth for study by Weather Bureau scientists. A special experiment carried on board the Aurora 7 would investigate the behavior of fluids under zero-g conditions. Accomplishing all these science experiments, in addition to piloting the spacecraft and maintaining constant communications with the tracking stations, created an extremely busy flight plan. But Carpenter didn't complain about the additional work. He welcomed it. The capsule and booster used on Carpenter's mission were virtually identical to Glenn's Friendship 7. The Mercury spacecraft, number 18, was delivered to Cape Canaveral on November 15, 1961, and the Atlas booster, number 107D, was rolled out of the Convair factory in San Diego, California, on February 25, 1962. It was delivered to Cape Canaveral on March 6, 1962. 
on May 24, 1962 at 7.45 Eastern Time as millions watched and listened, Aurora 7 lifted off from Launch Complex 14 at Cape Canaveral. Gus Grissom was the voice of Mission Control at the Cape. Now let's ride along with Scott Carpenter from T-2 minutes all the way to orbit. All Mercury Station at T-2 and counting. Status check. Missile power. Go. RF system. Go. Propulsion. Go. AMR telemetry. Go. Telemeter in quality. Go. Telling how we are. Mercury capsule. Go. T minus 60 seconds. Test conductor. Mercury is go. Yours is two Turn around. Pump stamp is good. 
T plus 16 minutes, the first problem occurred. Carpenter reported, I think my attitude is not in agreement with the instruments. This was the beginning of a problem with the Automatic Stabilization and Control System, ASCS. The problem would continue throughout the mission. At T plus 18 minutes, Carpenter began getting behind in the flight plan because of his attention spent on a science experiment. At T plus 26 minutes, Carpenter reported, Uh, Roger, I am a little behind in the flight plan at this moment. I've been unable to, at this time, install the MIT film. I finally have it. I'll go through the gyro uncaging procedure very shortly. Carpenter's space suit and gloves were making it difficult to load and unload film for the camera. He also discovered that there was not enough time allowed for the transition from one activity to another. As Carpenter began work on the Venus sighting experiment, he inadvertently left his automatic and manual thrusters on. Leaving both systems on consumed fuel at a much higher rate. At T plus 48 minutes, Carpenter discovered the mistake and radioed. Oh dear, I've used too much fuel. Well, I'm going to have to increase, let's see, going to ASCS at this time. Carpenter enabled the automatic stabilization and control system. At T plus 49 minutes, while talking to Deke Slayton in Muchia, Carpenter reported, Roger, things are going very well. My status is good, the capsule status is very good, the control mode is normal. Automatic gyros normal and maneuver off. Fuel is 72 to 100 percent, oxygen 88 to 100 percent. Everything is normal with the exception of the fact that I'm a tad behind in the flight plan. At T plus 50 minutes, Carpenter started experiencing suit temperature problems. He radioed, Roger, this is the story on the suit temp. I have increased two 10 degree marks since liftoff, and about now, well, 15 degrees above launch mark. My steam vent temperatures read 69 to 80 degrees. I'll take one more stab at increasing or decreasing temperature by increasing flow rate. If this doesn't work, I'll turn them off and start lower. At T plus 1 hour 23 minutes, sunrise over Canton, John Glenn's fireflies were sighted. I have the more of the white particles in view below the capsule. They look exactly like snowflakes to me. At T plus one hour, 29 minutes, Gordon Cooper told Carpenter he was go for the second orbit. One minute later, Carpenter sent a greeting to Guaymas, Mexico. Hey, will you pass on uh, this message uh, for me, Gordo, to all the troops at uh, Guaymas? Hola, amigos. Desde el espacio exterior, 
Plus one hour thirty eight minutes, Carpenter deployed a multicolored balloon from the spacecraft. To me, the balloon resembled a beach ball. The balloon remained tethered to the spacecraft throughout the remainder of the mission. The purpose of the experiment was to provide atmospheric drag and color visibility data in space. Carpenter observed that the colors orange and silver were the most visible in space. Later in the second orbit over the Indian Ocean, the tracking station radioed Carpenter that they had received their first respiration telemetry. Carpenter assured them that he was, in fact, breathing. At 2 hours, 16 minutes, Carpenter reported, I have gotten badly behind in the flight plan now. At 2 hours, 27 minutes, over Muchia, Australia, it became clear that the ASCS was malfunctioning and using the spacecraft's fuel at an alarming rate. With growing concern over the fuel situation, Deke Slayton radioed this order to Carpenter, quote, we suggest you go to manual at this point and preserve your autofuel. He continued, For your information, CAPE informs that if we don't stay on manual for quite a spell here, we'll probably have to end the mission on this orbit. End quote. Of course, Carpenter complied by staying on manual. Fortunately, Aurora 7 was entering the stage of the mission where drifting flight was required. Carpenter was given a go for the third orbit, and over Cape Canaveral, it was time to jettison the balloon. He performed the procedure, but the 100-foot nylon cable holding the balloon would not release. At this point, Carpenter did not have time to continue attempting to release the balloon, so it remained attached until it was burned up in re-entry. Carpenter continued to concentrate heavily on science experiments throughout the third orbit. Then... At T plus 3 hours 26 minutes, he observed the space particles again. I should remark that at 3 hours 26 minutes, I have in the sky at any time 10 particles. They no doubt appear to glow to me. They appear to be little pieces of frost. However, some appear to be way, way far away. There are two that look like they might be 100 yards away. I haven't operated thruster, not for some time now. At T plus, 4 hours, 19 minutes, just as the sun rose, Carpenter solved the Firefly mystery. Sunrise. Ah, beautiful. Lighted fireflies that time. It was luminous that time. But it's only... Okay, they... All right, I have, if anybody reads, I have the fireflies. They are very bright. They are capsule emanating. I can 
it's just the light of the sun. I'll try to get a picture of it. They're brilliant. They are little tiny white pieces of frost. I judge from that the whole side of the capsule must have frost on it. So it turned out that John Glenn's fireflies were frost on the capsule. Carpenter could hit the wall of the capsule and more frost particles would come off. Mystery solved. As Aurora 7 approached Hawaii for the final time, Carpenter was instructed to orient the spacecraft and to turn on the automatic stabilization system in preparation for the pre-retro sequence. A couple of minutes after turning on the ASCS, Carpenter discovered that it was not working correctly. So he returned to manual fly-by-wire and reported that his attitudes did not agree. At this point, Carpenter was about five minutes from retrofire. The Hawaii tracking station had just enough time to run through the pre-retrofire checklist before he went out of range. Upon contacting the California station, Carpenter reported the problem with the ASCS to Alan Shepard. Shepard agreed that Carpenter should use the manual system and told him he had 30 seconds to retrofire. Here's the clip of the retrofire. Automatic retrofire did not occur, so Carpenter manually pressed all three retro buttons in sequence. It took about three seconds for Carpenter to realize that the retro did not fire, press the buttons, and for the retros to actually ignite. This meant that he was going to overshoot his splashdown target by at least 20 miles. At T plus 4 hours 34 minutes, Carpenter reported his automatic fuel was at 20%, and his manual fuel was at 5%. The spacecraft was slowly tumbling, so Carpenter had to correct it using manual fuel. One minute later, he reported that his manual fuel was empty. During the re-entry communications blackout, Carpenter recorded this message. Aurora 7's fuel tanks were empty, but once in the atmosphere, the Mercury capsule's blunt design kept it from oscillating too wildly. Carpenter decided to manually deploy the drogue parachute a little early to help stabilize the descent. At 10,000 feet, the main parachute deployed on schedule. Here's the clip. Is out and reached, and it looks good to me. Does anybody see it? Yes, I see it. 
Aurora 7 splashed down about 250 miles downrange from the target. This error was attributed to Carpenter being distracted watching the fireflies, his extremely busy flight plan, his slight delay in firing the retros, but the biggest problem was the malfunctioning of the automatic stabilization and control system. After splashdown, Carpenter exited the spacecraft through the top bulkhead, got into his rubber raft, and waited for the massive recovery forces that included 20 ships, 110 aircraft, and 13,000 military personnel. NASA delayed reporting Carpenter's splashdown until two hours after the blackout period, which left the media wondering if the U.S. had lost its first astronaut. But all was forgiven after Carpenter's recovery. Even with the problems with the gyro, the ASCS, the spacesuit, and the overshoot of the target, the mission was considered another success for NASA. Valuable scientific information was discovered, most notably liquid behavior in a weightless state, the identification of the air glow layer observed by John Glenn, and photography of terrestrial features and meteorological phenomena. The flight further proved the Mercury spacecraft systems for manned orbital operations and provided evidence for progressing into missions of extended duration. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.